Hi and welcome to Magic Numbers. This is episode number 85. And today we're going to be talking about how to use data to understand draft and in particular, of course, the Lord of the Rings format. But before we go into that, I would like to thank my sponsor, mtgazone.com, a site where you can read all about new constructed decks. And when I put myself together and start writing uh, properly, uh, also my articles about limited, but you also get some other limited content uh, from J2S Josh and and some other people. So uh, it's good to give the stop there, read some articles, click on mine so that they know that I'm bringing people and, um, you know, uh, they are helping me. So it would be nice if you could help them because that helps me. Uh, also, this podcast is sponsored by you, or at least some of you who are my patrons. And yeah, uh, there are some perks that come with, uh, uh, with, uh, uh, supporting me on Patreon. Uh, one of those perks is keeping me interested in continuing to do that uh, content, uh, which is important for my sanity. <laughs> so uh, if you have some spare cash lying around, I would highly encourage you to uh, go to my Patreon. Links should be somewhere in my uh, profile descriptions. And uh, yeah, uh, give it a try. Right, with that out of the way, we can move to... Um, the preamble, which I will start with, uh, just to get me warmed up on talking. And today's preamble is key level up in limited is a switch from assembling good cars to drafting good decks. And I think that, you know, the first step of people learning how to play limited is figuring out which cards are good, which cards are bad. And this is not so difficult to do with 17lands.com because you can just go look at the cards, look at their win rate, maybe go a bit deeper, look at win rates within particular archetypes and see which cards are really good and which cards are medium and which cards are probably traps. Um, but once you have that out of the way, just assembling a bunch of cards with high win rate is not going to make a deck. So um, in order to jump over that level, you have to start thinking about what is the plan of your deck. And I think that plan is the sort of overarching topic of today's seminar. Um, and we are going to try to look at data specifically trying to figure out uh, which are the plans of given decks by looking at different metrics and how to try to look at those things. And also what does it mean for when you draft the deck, which, um, which thoughts you should be having when you try to build a particular um, archetype or particular build of, a, of the color combinations. So this is, I think, a step that 
quite few players never jump over and they continue either putting bad cards so they don't even move into that level where uh, you know which cards to to assemble into your decks but even people that know which cards are good will sometimes build decks suboptimally so they will prioritize uh, high win rate cards over cards that fit in their decks and i think that uh there's plenty of content that can help you um overcome this problem and uh i'm really hoping that this episode today is going to be one of those pieces that uh, will help you conceptualize how to draft synergistic and well-rounded decks rather than amalgams of, of, of even solid cards. And don't get me wrong, you can go quite far with um, drafting good cards, but it's not going to um, it's not going to put you in that top tier of players. The top tier players will always um, be able to prioritize a lower win rate card because it fits better to their plan and they know exactly when to do it. And it's a hard skill to do, but uh, hopefully um, if you're not there yet, uh, this episode will sort of at least in some way help you uh, conceptualizing it. Uh, before we go to the main topic, um, just a quick reminder that the metagame in Limited is shifting and um, win rates are changing. So these are the win rates from last week. And Ragdus is still the best deck, uh, but last week uh, Ragdus was just barely above uh, Is it as the top winning archetype. And this week, it's the difference is already quite substantial. So uh, we have Ragdus at 58.7% um, win rate, and last week it was 57.7, so one percentage point up. Um, and Is it is down to fourth place at 56.4. So more than two percentage points lower than uh, Ractus is. So I think that last week is it was pretty much wide open and 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 people have moved on and started drafting is it more and and then that has um, uh, caused the win rate to drop ever so slightly. At the same time, if more people draft is it, then fewer people are drafting Ragdos, and that means that uh, Ragdos moved up by this one percentage point, and as a result, we have quite a large difference between those two. Uh, meanwhile, also Orzov and Boros uh, moved a bit up uh, to 56.9 and 56.5. So a guess would be that white is slightly more open, was slightly more open this week. Uh, so that's maybe something you can uh, draw your attention to when you're drafting next time. And it also seems that black is just slightly more open um, uh, because of the increase of Ragdos. And Demir is still pretty good at 55.7 uh, just behind Izzet. Um, and we still have the same situation that there are six color pairs that are pretty decent uh, to the five that I mentioned. You can add also Golgari um, at 55.3. Golgari is sort of stably being just behind the top five uh, archetypes. And uh, I think that uh, there is some good builds of Golgari if black is open, uh, but other colors are not. Uh, that's not a color combination that you should be avoiding actively at all. But I think that one of the important parts is that black should be at least somewhat open for you to go into there. And then after that, we have uh, three archetypes that are below par. Uh, Gruul, Selesnya, and Azorius, 53.7, 52.3, and 52% win rate. So not tragic, but nothing to brag about. And then we have Simic with 49.7. And for 17 Lens users to have under 50% win rate, it must mean that the color combination is really 
pretty poor. So this is one that you probably should quite actively avoid drafting. Right, so quick update on what's happened this week. And with that, we can move to the main topic of the seminar today. And it will be how to look at the game data. And game data is something that pops out usually around a month, maybe three weeks after the uh, format hits uh, Arena. Uh, in public data sets, you can get game data from either best of one or best of three. I'm going to be looking at best of one because there are more games in there. So you can draw more solid conclusions because you have a higher sample size. And what you have there is you have compositions of every deck, uh, you have um, data on what was drawn, what was in the opening hand. I'm not looking at those um, uh, numbers today. Uh, I'm only going to look at the deck composition data, but uh, uh, there is possibility of also looking how important it is to draw cards in your opening hand how important it is to have a tutor effect in, 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 in the metagame, if there are such, uh, and, and, and plenty of other things. Um, also, you get a bit of a glimpse of, so you can, first of all, you have the composition, so you know exactly what's in the deck. Um, you also have performance, so you will know which games were won and which games were lost, and also how long did those games lasted, uh, who was on the play, who was on the draw, all those kinds of numbers you can um, you can look into and and and, and figure something out. Um, second of all, you have a bit of a look in the opponent data because when you have the data on the website, you will see that okay, Demir is winning fifty six point five percent or whatever, um, but you don't know against whom were they playing. So um, with seventeen lens data, at least you have a partial information of which color combinations are in the decks of, uh, of opponents. Uh, importantly, you also will know the speed of the games. This is something interesting for many people, but also I, um, I'm, I'm, I'm not stuck on, um, on looking at the speed of the format in general, because I don't think it's a very telling uh, metric. And it is just, in many cases, people have a desire of knowing the speed of the format so they can complain about it uh, one way or the other. But um, for me, the most interesting part of it is the speed of individual archetypes and linking their speed to their win rate. So um, basically I want to see which uh, color pairs play fast game uh, and win more uh, of the short games and which archetypes uh, lose games that start early that that and early and but uh, have a staying power and can play the long game and win games that last uh, you know over 12 turns uh, so we're going to be looking at some of that thing uh, and then of course uh, quite an important thing that you can get from the game data is because you know the composition of the decks you can look at decks that contain a particular card and you can start exploring what makes that particular card tick and of course, you know, in, in lots of cases, it's not that interesting. If you have like your vanilla three, three for free mana, you probably won't find any interesting trends about which decks are super good with that card in. But when you look at some cards, and we're going to look at a couple of those um, today, you can actually start figuring things out. And I'm talking mainly about the cards that are either high synergy cards or even uh, sort of build around the kind of cards. Um, then you can look at if they're, let's say, wall build around, like there we used to have a couple of sets ago, you can see how does the win rate of this card change depending on the number of walls in, 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 in the deck. Um, 
Today, we're going to, for example, look at fire inscription and uh, look at the win rate of decks that contain fire inscription, depending on um, number of instant and sorceries in the deck uh, and things like that. Or, for example, we're going to be looking at is it important to amass a lot when you have the march from the Black Gate in your deck? Or is it just enough to have march of the, uh, from the Black Gate and you don't need any other amass sources? Um, and then there, is, um, then there is stuff like you can do a certain category data. So you can link win rates with number of instants, link uh, wins with number of creatures, link um, um, what is the win rate of a particular deck depending on the number of uncommons that are in the deck, which will be a sort of measure of how open the, um, the color pair was, but also it will be a measure of how important uh, different rarity cards are. So for example, I can imagine formats when number of rares will be highly correlated with the win rate, and I can imagine formats where having rares will not change the win average win rate by that much. Uh, so all of those things you can look through um, uh, the uh, game data from the uh, from the format and um, and of course many more. You can you can basically this is such a rich archetype that I could probably just sit there make a graph every ten minutes and it's going to be somewhat interesting. Uh, uh, of course, and the longer I do it, the usefulness might get limited. But uh, you can make literally thousands of uh, interesting graphs and uh, it's really imagination and time that is the limit in, in exploring this kind of data set. Right, so vital statistics, uh, what did I do? I looked at 320,000 games. Uh, the whole data set has over 500,000, but I trimmed the first, uh, I, I trimmed all the data from the streamer event that was before the release of the set. And also, I cut all the um, all the data from the first week because first week is usually chaotic and it introduces quite a lot of noise because colors are open, cards are going late, decks can be busted, and uh, it's not really useful for. Um, it's useful in the initial stages of the format to figure out what's good, but it's not going to help you currently to draft because you're playing a completely different meta game right now. Cards are picked. Um, with different priority, and um, I preferably would cut the first two weeks, but uh, I didn't want to cut too much data, so I kept the second week, but not the first one. Obviously, all the data is from best of one. Um, also, uh, just to give you the impression, these are the win rates of uh, all the archetypes from uh, from the data. So uh, still, we have Ragdos is the top archetype with 58% uh, win rate. And then we have Izzet, um, uh, Orzov, and uh, Boros with around 56 and a half, 56%. Uh, Demir also around 56. Uh, Golgari 55.5. Um, Gruul 54. Uh, Selesnya 52.7. Azorius 52.3. And uh, Simic 50.1. So, really very, very similar data to the data from the last week. Uh, so, um, so uh, yeah, uh, it seems that format is relatively stable from that time. And I'm sure that if I included data from the first week, this graph would look quite different because, um, for example, uh, Boros was quite quite much better in the first week because of how, A, how open it was, and B, how people were not capable of uh, picking the best cards because they didn't know which ones are those. And thirdly, um, um, there was uh, also 
the fact that in the early format, the aggressive decks are usually slightly better because they are just easier to conceptualize and assemble. So uh, at first I'm going to look at speed and I'm going to look at the speed, but not of the whole format. Because as I said, I don't really like that metric. I think that it's misleading because it puts one number on multiple things. And, and usually you lose quite a lot of information by looking just at how fast um, all the format is because you will have slower decks and you have faster decks. Looking at one number will just tell you, oh, the format is very, very fast, but you might completely miss that there is a really good slow deck um, in that format and that there are some decks that are really good in playing long games and they can lead to those long games. So I divided it sort of arbitrarily um, looking, well, semi-arbitrarily. I tried to keep the uh, you know samples quite, um, quite large. Uh, but um, I divided it into categories. So um, I would say, what percentage of the games end early? And by early, I mean turns one to six. Uh, and when you look at this first category, um, Boros games and 20% of them end in turns one to six. Uh, and on the other side of the spectrum, uh, we have uh, Demir and Azorius, where only 10% of the games um, end between turns one and six. And then you have like a stable increase between uh, Dimir and uh, Azorius. Then you have, is it 12%, uh, Orzov 13, uh, Golgari 14, Rakdos 15%, Selesnya also 15%. Then we go to like 16, 17% with Gruul and Simic. And uh, Boros ends 20% of the games in turns one to six. Uh, so that doesn't tell you anything about the outcome of the game. Uh, it does show you how what percentage of the games end on those turns. We're going to look at the outcomes in a second. Springbok is saying, I was also expecting, is it to be higher? Is it because there are two types of visit decks? We're going to look at it because we're going to look at uh, uh, blue, red in quite some detail later. So uh, we're going to talk about it. Uh, it's based on the archetype uh, on, on game. When do the games end independent of win or loss? We're going to look at the outcomes in a second. So then we have the turn seven, eight. Uh, on those two turns, like you, you can see that, you know, uh, turns one to six between 10 and 20% of the games end. Uh, turn seven, eight, uh, the lowest is Azorius, 28% of the games end on turn seven and eight. So this is the time when the games end in, 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 in this format between turn seven and eight, roughly 30%. 37 even for Boros uh, will end in, on turn seven and eight. So we have two that are sort of outliers in terms of uh, not many games end, and it's Demir and Azorius. Those two were also the ones where fewest games ended on turns one and six, which tells me that independently of the outcomes, these decks either cannot kill early or are cap very, very naturally capable of prolonging the game. Um, they both have around 28% of the games ending on turn seven, eight. And then we have like a cluster of uh, basically Izzet, uh, Orzov, uh, Golgari, Rakdos, Selesnya, and Simic. They are all between like 32 and 34, 35 maybe percent uh, of the games end on those two turns. And then we have Gruul and, um, and Boros, when, which have 37% of the games ending on turn seven and eight. Um, and then we have a complete flip. Uh, between turns nine and turn 11, um, 
if the first graph was going from um, Demir Azorius as the lowest to uh, Boros as the highest percentage of the games ending in turns 1-6, here we have opposite. Demir and Azorius are the ones where most of the games uh, end on turns 9 to 11. 42.3% for Demir and 40.9% for Azorius. Um, and then we just go down exactly in reverse order as the first graph. So we have Izzet, Azorius um, at 39%. Then we have um, Golgari and Rakdos, 37. Um, Selesnya, 35.5. Um, Gruul, 34.5. And um, Simic, 35. And Boros, only 32.6% of the games end on those turns, 9 to 11. Um, and if you go to games that last over 12 turns or more, um, again, Demir and Azorius, 19 and 20% of the games end on turns 12 and after that. And all the other ones sort of roughly in the 14, 15, 16 area for Izzet, Azorius, Golgari, and Selesnya. And then one maybe step lower, uh, Ragdos, um, uh, Gruul, uh, and Simic with 13, 12%. And Boros is at the bottom with only 11% of the games ending uh, after turn 12. So um, a bunch of uh, uh, a bunch of decks that have sort of consistent result. Uh, clearly, Demir and Azorius uh, are good in making the games last long, and clearly, games of Boros are ending very fast. Um, but how does it relate to the um, to the win rate? So here we have this one of this, these awful tables that I'm making and for some reason loving them, um, where we have all the archetypes, all the color pairs, and we have the duration of the game, and we have a win rate of games that end on a particular turn. And you can uh, see instantly that uh, if you look at um, Azorius and if you look at uh, Dimir, they lose majority of the games that last under eight turns. So Azorius will have like games ending at turn four, four 44% win rate. Uh, to turn six, 46. Turn seven, 47. And then on turn eight, we have a big jump and it's already 53% of the games won. And it continues roughly at this 53 until we reach turn 11, then it goes to 56. Um, then we have like a mini slump at 54.8, 54.6. Uh, but at 15 turns, 57% of the games were won, and at 16 turns, 62.7% of the games were won. So there's a clear increasing trend of uh, Azorius decks. Uh, they lose the early games, and they um, they win the games that last uh, longer, uh, much higher. This is especially important because this is not like the highest win rate archetype. So um, it's actually one of the lower ones, uh, but it's still capable of winning 57% of the long games, even 62% of very long games. So this to me is a clue that if I want to build my um, blue-white deck, I probably don't want to build some kind of curve-out aggro deck. I want to build something that um, will stabilize early in the game somehow and um, and will try to lead to long game, and the long game, I'm actually having increasingly better chances. So if I'm, I actually never drafted Azorius in this format yet, but if I ever will do, I will definitely try to uh, make a sort of controlling kind of deck and um, and uh, try to somehow 
pushed to uh, pushed to the long game, and and in that long game, I will be hoping to uh, uh, to use the natural tendency of Azorius in this format and win. And you see the same, but even, but much more spectacular numbers like that for Demir, where between turns three and seven, it has roughly you know forty eight. 48 to uh, to 50 percent win rate, and then from eight onwards, it just increases. So at the turn eight, 54 percent win rate. Turn 10, it's already 58 percent win rate. Turn 12, 13, 60 percent, and it continues to be around 59, 60 percent um, uh, for those longer games that last over 12 turns. Uh, if you go back, we also know that um, both Azorius and Demir are quite good in. Uh, having the game last long. So 40% of the games last longer than than eight turns, and then 20% of the games last longer than 12 turns. So like 60% of the games will go uh, nine turns or longer, which means nine turns is when um, when uh, Demir has 56% win rate, and it increases to roughly 60 after that. So 60% of the games that Demir plays will manage to get to the stage where the deck is actually winning quite a lot. Um, and the same, and again, to a much lesser extent, it's going to be true for uh, Azorius. And I think that maybe there is some potential to uh, try to draft Azorius and try to figure out what the best builds are, uh, because it looks promising, those numbers, to me, that at least this is a deck that not necessarily is absolutely tragic. There might be some potential if you are capable of building a deck that can last those long games. Yeah, Demir is much better, but it's because Demir, um, Springbok, because Demir is generally better. It has stronger card quality. But um, I think that um, Azorius also falls into a trap of people trying to build decks around the um, uh, the Signpost Uncommon, which is sort of like an aggro creature, which uh, people might think, oh, yeah, you want to you want to go fast. You want to play this um, uh, uh, Imrahil and uh, make one once and attack with this, but um, but potentially white blue is at its best as a, as a control deck and uh, should be built as such probably. And I don't know exactly how you're going to do it, but um, it looks to me like that that's, this is the way. Um, but then we have three archetypes that, or even, well, let's say, let's say three archetypes that are the opposite that have a really high win rate in the early game, and that win rate drops off quite a lot as the game goes to the late game. And I'm talking specifically about um, Orzov, um, Boros, and Rakdos. So all the Mardu color pairs, they are aggressive and they are fast, and they win those short, shorter games. And, you know, uh, Rakdos wins 70% of the games that end on turn 3-4, 66% percent of the games that end on turn five and turn six 64 percent turn seven 61 percent and then on turn eight we drop down to 58 percent and uh, turn nine 57 and then we go to like 55 and 10 and you move to 12 it's already only 51 and at turn 15 we drop below 50 percent win rate to 48 and it still goes down to like 46 44 percent when the games last 17 18 turn so um so yeah, I mean, completely opposite than uh, we saw from uh, Demir, even though they share a color. So uh, it probably means to me that um, 
red uh, is responsible for that aggressive part of uh, Ragdos and blue is responsible for that controlling part of uh, both Azorius and Demir. Um, and yeah, similar numbers we see for uh, white red, but there the drop is even stronger. So it starts at like 64, 65, even 70% uh, win rate in the early turns. And then at turn eight, it already drops to 55 only. At turn 10, it drops below 50%. And, you know, at turn 16, Boros decks have like 38% win rate. So uh, they basically, if, if, if you don't win by turn eight, you're going to have an uphill struggle uh, with your Boros decks. Um, slightly to a lesser extent, um, we have similar things with Orzov, but here it's mainly that Orzov decks win quite a lot more in if the games end early. Uh, so like 65% would gain ends on turn three, but of course here we have small sample size, but you know, like 59 to 57% uh, win rate uh, on turns four, five, six, seven, um, even to eight and nine, we have similar numbers. So like 56, 57%. And then there's this sort of slump, uh, but it doesn't go as deep as, um, uh, as Demir has. So uh, actually, ours of wins less when the games last longer, um, but more than, uh, let's say, Ragdos decks when the games last longer. So even at turns 11 to 15, the win rate is around 53, 54%. Uh, so it doesn't have that slump, but it, of course it's not as impressive uh, in the early game. So uh, this is more like an all-rounding deck that is sort of classic mid-range that um, has a tendency to be uh, better in the early game, but doesn't drop off and has a staying power. So it's like, can last through all the game, basically. Um, and similar with uh, blue-red, also has quite a high win rate in the early turns with the one outlying point of, of turn five, for some reason it doesn't win, but I guess that this is just variance. But you know, like 56, 57, uh, 60% um, until turn 10, and then from turn, 11 onwards, it drops down to 53%. Uh, and then there's also a couple of outliers there, but generally like it doesn't drop completely to the bottom. It doesn't go below 50% at any stage, uh, but it just wins slightly more in the first turns. Um, pa -pa um, and then, you know, we have decks like, uh, <laughs> like cycling uh, blue-green, which just doesn't have any kind of meaningful trend. It's, it's pretty bad across the board with couple of outliers that, you know, uh, don't explain much, it seems to me. Uh, what else do we have there? Uh, yeah, I think that uh, Golgari is another deck similar to uh, Orzov. So basically, it can win something early, but it also stays till the longer game. Not as impressive uh, in that as uh, Demir was, but there is some, I think, increase in the later turn. So, uh, Maybe it's something like between Orzov and uh, Demir in terms of staying power. Um, and we have um, Gru. Gru is also better in winning early, but it's just not as good as, um, as either uh, Ragdos or uh, Boros were. So looking at this data, I think that the important thing that you can draw for yourself is knowing those numbers, and I don't, you don't need to know them by heart. You just probably need to know that, you know, Boros and uh, Ragdos want to win early. 
and that Demir, uh, maybe Golgari and uh, Azorius, they want to have longer games. Um, knowing those things, we should probably at least guide you in which cards will be better suitable for your deck. So if you're building a blue-white deck, um, you want cards that will be you know, better for the long game. So maybe some card draw, uh, uh, maybe some uh, filtering mechanics, like um, I'm sure that Tempting will be very good in those uh, blue-white decks. You know, maybe some like def good defensive uh, early creatures to, um, to ensure that you are surviving till the late game. Some tempo plays, like I don't know, Isolation at Orthanc may be good because that buys you time and then later gives your opponent a draw that uh, is not as impactful in the later game as it was in turn two. Um, so all the, all kind of those things will be uh, will be quite useful for your uh, for your Azorius build, for example. And you know that because you know that Azorius wants to play that long game. And most importantly, knowing that Azorius wants to play that longer game will save you from the trap of trying to build the sort of blue-white uh, tempo aggro, which just doesn't have the tools to, to win those quick games in this format, it seems. So that's how you can practically um, gain advantage from, from, from knowing this sort of data. Um, what else? Apart from knowing what has which winning rate, um, in the game data from 17 lands, you can also sort of know how is the win rate of particular color combination against uh, a different color combination, something you cannot get from those tables that you can find on the website. Um, so here are some examples, and uh, we have decks that are played by the 17 lands user and decks that are played um, um, by their opponents, and you can look at the win rate of uh, matchups. So I think first thing that is interesting is the diagonal, because diagonal is the percentage win rate in the mirror matchups. And that, to one extent, will be telling me how skill-based a particular archetype is, uh, because, uh, and of course, there is variance here. So, you know, don't take the, you have to take those with a bit of a grain of salt, because, of course, the sample sizes are not humongous. Uh, you have, like, 100 combinations uh, out of, 200, I think 40,000 games in this particular category. So um, you will have like average 2,400 games between each archetype, but not of them are made equal. So some of them will be based on like 1,000 games, which is, you know, smallish sample size for this kind of data. Uh, but looking at the diagonal, I think that the win rate of Boros on Boros uh, is only 52.5% in advantage of um, 17 lent users. And I think that this is symptomatic of what this deck is. It's an aggressive deck that doesn't have challenging game plan. Um, so you will, as, as, as you know, even a better player, you will not gain a huge advantage over your opponents just because your um, gameplay is better. Because um, it will be very much draw dependent and deck, deck dependent rather than gameplay dependent. So these kind of decks um, are flattening the uh, the win rate against the mirror because it doesn't necessarily depend on um, making fancy plays, but it depends on uh, who drew better. Uh, on the other hand, on the other side of the spectrum, we have uh, uh, Demir, with, which has 55.4% win rate in the mirror. So 17 lens users that play Demir have a much higher win rate than the, their opponents. Um, and that's probably because blue-black, that is a 
deck that has many decisions to be made. So um, uh, because of many decisions, the more decisions you need to make, the more those decisions are impactful, the, um, um, the bigger advantage does the uh, more invested player get if they are more skilled in the game. And I think that this is like a sort of mini conclusion you can try drawing from that data. What else can we see? Like first we can see that um, Simic decks lose with everything outside of the bunt uh, uh, wedge. Is it wedge or a shard? Whatever, whichever of the band colors. So it has under 50% win rate with every archetype except for Azorius, um, Selesnya, and uh, Mirror Matchup uh, in uh, Simic, uh, where it has actually 55% win rate. Um, so this tells me that blue black, the uh, blue green is not doing terribly against decks that have little um, uh, good removal. Um, and that is something that would be quite logical. It's just in those decks that have A plus B synergies, and this is the case for you need scrying and you need some payoff for scrying. In those A plus B decks, um, any interruption is going to be absolutely um, backbreaking because you will very frequently have already a problem of drawing only scry cards and no payoffs for scrying or all payoffs for scrying and no scry cards. Um, that will happen naturally because uh, of the nature of that. And that's why, for example, cards that are both enablers and payoffs are uh, are so important because obviously then you draw them, you don't need to worry about uh, not drawing one half of your synergy combo. But also, even if you draw like one one payoff and, and a couple of scry spells, if that payoff is going to get killed by removal, well, you're just again left with Scry. And well, hopefully Scry is helping you to draw into those more payoffs, but then you draw into their payoffs and you used all your Scry cards to get there and then you don't have Scry to, uh, uh, for your payoffs to do something spectacular. So that, that's the main problem of this deck. But it seems that the cards are not like tragic in that deck because in those um, blue-white, uh, uh, white-green and uh, blue-green matchups, it does, okay, 55% win rate. It's just any interruption at the removal level um, is, up, is is heavily punishing for it. So that's one thing you can see from there. And on the other hand, bunch of decks are doing particularly well against those um, uh, white, blue, white, green, and blue, green. Um, and I'm talking uh, Orzov, I'm talking Boros, I'm talking uh, Demir, I'm talking Izzet. I'm talking uh, Ragdos and I'm talking Golgari. All those decks do markedly better against those uh, three color combinations than against anything else. And there's a weird one, Gruul, which does really well against Azorius, which does really good against Simic, but does really poorly against Selesnya, and I can't explain why that happens. There's also a couple of decks that do well against Golgari and Gruul. Um, and uh, in particular, Azorius was the interesting one for me to see. It has 55.5% win rate against both of those color combinations. I don't have an answer why that would be, but uh, I think it's interesting to, uh, to observe it. Um, now, there is also a couple of decks that do decently against Demir, as, as, as um, piloted by the... Um, uh, as piloted by the... Uh, so there are a couple of decks that do pretty well against Demir, and that's Orzov, Boros, um, 
Demir as a matchup, mirror matchup, is it and 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 Ragdos, um, and that's a bit surprising. But that also might be uh, another sort of small pointer towards the fact that um, seventeen lands opponents are not great in playing the mirror decks because they are a slightly higher uh, skill level and seventeen lands opponents they have an average win rate of forty six. So uh, that's not a super high win rate because they have to play against 17 lands users, which have a high win rate. Then, of course, that explains it. Um, but uh, it might mean that um, they are in the category of players that don't do particularly well with controlling and, and, and decks that are you know, uh, having a, a big selection of choices that you need to make. Um, another thing that I think is mildly interesting is that um, even against Rakdos, um, in most archetypes, 17 lens users have over 50% win rate, but it's just barely. Um, this is interesting because last time I did this graph was for AFR, and in AFR, not even 17 lens users were capable of winning over 50% of the games, except for the mirror matchup. So, um, yeah, uh, that uh, that's, means that... Ragdos is dominant, but not as backbreaking as it was in AFR, in my opinion. Uh, you can win it, win with it with multiple archetypes, even though you're not going to be as favored as you would normally be um, against it. Unless, of course, you play the mirror. Um, what other interesting thing from that? Um, well, I mean, Selesnya wins with Simic and not much more. Uh, that's mildly interesting i guess uh, i think that the fact that azorius wins with golgari and gruel is is quite interesting because it doesn't win with much else but um, it somehow deals well with uh, with golgari, golgari and gruel and i think that this is it for this particular graph um okay so let's move to maybe some broader categories and i think that the first one is land cycling and in lord of the ring sets we do have the land cycling that costs one mana and that is very playable to the point that this now played in Lorien Revealed is played in Legacy, Vintage, one of those two, um, and in Modern. Uh, uh, so yeah, now it's a constructed staple uh, because this one mana is a low cost and the card effect is pretty decent. Uh, so this, of course, pushed me to checking what ratios of lands to cyclers do you want to have in your deck? Because, of course, uh, you can replace a land with your land cycler. Um, but is it always good? Should you replace it one for one? Maybe you should replace two for one uh, or maybe something in between, maybe like three for two. So I decided to take a look at the data about how many lands are there in the deck and how many land cyclers are and link um, the win rate um, to those numbers. Uh, so when you look at this, this graph, uh, here we have the number of lands in the deck between 12 and 18. Here we have a number of land cyclers in the deck between zero and six. And um, so first what we see is that um, 18 lands is probably not a great idea in this format, independent of how many land cyclers do you have. 18 land decks uh, have 46% win rate when they have zero land cyclers. And when you put land cyclers into those decks, it actually becomes slightly higher, between like 51 to 54%. Um, also, playing 70 lands is not particularly good in this um, uh, format. Um, 
It's 17 land decks have a win rate of roughly, you know, between 54 and uh, 50% win rate. I would warn against putting too much weight on this number because it's at the edge of the uh, data that I found sample size is big enough so it can be high variance kind of measurement because there is like five land cyclers and 17 lands decks have 58% win rate. But before that happens, we have a decreasing um, win rate um, based on how many land cyclers you put. So best 17 land decks are with zero land cyclers and then the worst and with four of them. So you don't want to overload on the lands because you might end up uh, flooding and not being able to do much with that flood. Um, 16 land decks win actually quite a lot more than 17 land decks in this format. And I think the peak win rate for those is at uh, 16 um, lands and one land cycler in deck. It has around 57%. Um, and then, you know, it keeps quite stable between zero, one, and two land cyclers, and then drops off when you start putting three, four, five land cyclers in your 16 land deck, you end up with like 54, 53% win rate. Um, the optimal number of lands seems to be 15 in, in, in uh, Lord of the Rings set. So yeah, of course, 15 and zero lands, that means you play some kind of crazy aggressive deck with a bunch of two drops and not much more. Uh, and it still has a decent 56.5% win rate. That's the, one of the highest win rates we've seen so far in this graph. But actually, the, the money starts um, uh, of in, in, in the, between two and three land cyclers in your 15 land deck. And then uh, the win rate is around 58%. So I think that this suggests that if I want to substitute uh, my uh, lands with land cyclers, I probably should substitute roughly one to one or maybe three to two uh, in order to get the optimum uh, win rate. Because uh, by doing so, I'm ensuring that I'm going to sometimes cycle my lands as a land cycler, but I also am going to sometimes be able to cast the spells that are behind them. And you have to keep in mind, all those land cycling spells are quite expensive between five and six mana. So uh, there you go. Uh, and then actually 14 land decks with um, with two, three, or even four land cyclers are performing decently well. Uh, 14 land decks with zero land cyclers are a no-go. Uh, it's 49% win rate. You don't want to go there. But if you have two, three land cyclers uh, in your 14 land deck, the win rate is around 58%, which is quite quite nice, actually. And then it drops off when you start putting like four or five because probably you can draw too many expensive spells and you just end up cycling them. And uh, uh, yeah, this is for draft Dragon Lord Lotus. This is all for draft. Uh, I basically only do limited related content. Yeah. Um, and then when you have 13 lands, actually 13 lands and three land cyclers has 62% win rate. But these are all based on smaller sample sizes. They are still over 100 games each, but um, uh, there will be plenty of, um, plenty of uh, variance there. But at least you can't draw any conclusion that this is absolutely a no-go to play 13 lands in this format. It actually seems like this is not such a terrible idea to play uh, 13 lands and a bunch of land cyclers. Uh, and even 12 lands and a bunch of land cyclers don't have atrocious win rates. So, um, uh, you know, there is something in that. Uh, so generally, I think that you have to also keep in mind uh, when looking at this data that 
this doesn't tell you everything. There are some decks where I'm probably going to play 17 lands and some land cyclers because I want to draw my lands as on top of everything because I have plenty of late game plays. I have uh, plenty of ring tempting me. And because of that, I am uh, going to uh, want both my lands to loot or to play because I have so many things to play. And um, I also want my top end. And I also want to make sure that I hit my lands. So I want land cyclers and everything. But there will be decks where uh, you probably are happy to replace um, two of your lands with uh, land cyclers and, uh, and, and, and play like this. And part of it is because the one drops are not particularly good in this format. And because one drops are not so good, um, if you draw the land cycler in your opening hand, you can just blindly cycle it and you don't compete with this mana uh, with anything else because you were not planning on playing anything on turn one. And yes, it's true that sometimes you will keep a two lander and then you draw a land cycler and then you are uh, a bit uh, disturbed in your how you cast your spells. But you have to keep in mind that you have a much higher chance of drawing uh, the land cycler in your opening hand than, in, than drawing the land cycler in the uh, three cards uh, that you're going to draw in your first three turns. So um, all in all, I think that uh, playing like 15-2 50 lands, two land cyclers, or 50 lands, three land cyclers is a pretty good strategy. And if your deck is low to the ground, you might even want to go for like 14 and uh, uh, and, and and three, uh, especially if you also have green and you play cards like uh, many partings, uh, so so that you can get additional sources of lands there. Okay, so we can move on from uh, putting land cyclers and lands and, and what ratios you should go for that. And we can look at the tempt mechanic. And why? I mean, obviously, because this is the main mechanic of the set, and that's why uh, that's why it's interesting to look what's going on in there. And um, so, before I started analyzing the data, uh, I thought, okay, yeah, obviously, tempt is a great mechanic, but I thought it's density dependent. So, um, I've heard a lot of speculation about how much, what fraction of a card is tempt worth, and I think that. The problem with this question is that it's not a great question in general, because I think that tempt is density dependent. And that means first tempt is worthless for me. I don't care about it at all. Um, but the second one is very valuable. So what I want to have in my tempt decks is I want to be reliably tempting the second time. Uh, and preferably, I also want to be reliably tempting the fourth time, because that's where, you know, like, a lot of value is. But I think second tempt is the most valuable one because then you start looting. And that, of course, may, means that you're also digging into your next temp card. So you are basically self-fulfilling prophecy that you're going to complete this ring by filtering so many cards uh, off the top of your deck. So cards that have tempt on them, <clears throat> shocking information for you, have tempt on them, which means that if you don't do a lot of tempting, they are underrated. So un no, not underrated. They are underrate, uh, which means they're weaker than what you're paying for. So in low quantities, temp does little. And my hypothesis was that if you have low quantities of temp, low enough not to enable you to temp the second time regularly, it's actually detrimental to put temp cards unless they are like good on their own without the temp text. Uh, but if you have high number of tempt, any other card that has tempt on it will be absolutely phenomenal for your deck. Uh, 
because uh, it you know ensures that you're going to attempt the second time and then attempt the fourth time. Uh, so it will start becoming a dominant dominant force in those games. So my speculation before um, before I did the analysis was that either decks with like zero or almost no tempt, or decks with like huge amount of tempt are going to be the best in terms of the win rate. And then I decided, and, and then I and then I did the graph. And uh, well, first of all, distribution of a number of cards with tempt in the deck. So there's like very few decks with like no temp, only 1% of the decks had no cards with temp uh, tagged onto them. And then you have this beautiful, slightly slightly skewed uh, distribution of um, of the temp cards numbers in the decks. So like 3.5% of the decks have one, and then seven have two, and 11 have three. And then you peak at this 14 to 16% of the uh, of the decks have between four and six temp. And then you start dropping off, like 12% has 7, 8% has 8, 5.5% has 9, 3% has 10, and then like, you know, 1%, 11, and fractions of a percent, 12 and 13. But a beautiful distribution of those uh, tempt cards index. But how does the win rate look like? Uh, so basically, if you have no tempt cards, the average win rate of your deck is 55%. And then it starts dropping. One card to 54, uh, two cards just under 54, three tempt cards in your deck, 53.7, and this is the bottom. And from that moment on, every other tempt card is increasing the win rate. So uh, four tempt cards, 54.3, five tempt cards, 55, 54.7. We go up six, 56, uh, eight cards, 57, 10 cards, 59. Uh, 11 tempt cards, we go to 60, and then 12 and 13, that's even higher. 12 has 60.6, and 13 cards have 61.8. But just look at how beautiful this curve looks like um, with no tempt being as good as having five, six tempt cards. Then you drop, reach the bottom at three cards, because three is, is exactly what is I speculated on before. Uh, you have three tempt cards, so chance of drawing both of, uh, or two of them in the same game is low. Uh, so you will rarely get to that third chapter. Um, but you have three cards that are slightly under rate because they do have tempt, which is not so useful for you because you will only make one of your creatures unblockable to like two twos or something, which is you know not a great deal. So you have weakened your deck by putting under rate cards. Um, and you didn't get any benefits from having those uh, higher level of temp, which are what you're striving at. Um, and then, of course, adding each extra card with temp makes more sense because you are much more likely to get those um, second level of the ring. Uh, um, and you know, the, the the more you have, the, the higher opportunity that this is going to happen. And then again, at some stage, you're just going to be so capable of of looting every turn that you're going to win just by pure card selection against your opponent. Um, so yeah, I think that this is a pretty cool, uh, this is a pretty cool um, graph, but apart from being cool and looking, uh, I mean, I'm not used to having such noiseless graphs and biological data, so for me it's exciting. But apart from that, it also uh, can help you conceptualize how you should approach tempt. And I think that you should approach temp as an all or nothing mechanic. 
if you don't have much temp, I would basically try not to have as, have as little as possible and only put good cards that incidentally have tempt rather than um, putting cards because they have tempt. So yeah, again, I don't think I'm super keen on playing like the Relentless Rohirrim, the 4-3 that tempts on ETB when this is my only tempt card because 4-3 vanilla is not something I'm super interested in. But if I have like already six tempt cards, uh, that card is one of the better things I can put in my deck. Um, I think you can force tempt. I mean, I did it on several decks where I'm, I, I was just prioritizing cards with tempt over um, over better spells just to have like a high density of tempt cards, and it didn't. It it worked fine. Uh, so like I was putting like the breaking the fellowships into my deck and 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 stuff like that just because I wanted to have as much tempt as possible. And you know I'm honestly what I'm aiming is that I'm I'm aiming at having six tempt cards in my deck uh, if I have any tempt. And if I get more, I'm happy. But uh, at least I want to have six minimum. Yeah. All right. Um, we can move to the next part, and now I'm going to look at the blue red spells. Because blue-red is um, this sort of semi-secret good archetype, uh, I wanted to look at the link between number of spells, uh, and by spells I mean instants and sorceries, and, and the win rate. And um, I trimmed the graph because there was no point of showing those couple of decks that had no spells uh, in blue-red, because there, there's something clearly, clearly wrong with that. Um, but what we can see here is, um, between 9 and 21. Um, ah, Big Tasty has a good question. Sorry, um, before we start. Sorry, just tuning in. But where does the pool come from for these numbers? Do some amounts not need to have under 50% win rate in order for others to have above uh, 50? So, uh, no, because um, 70 lands users are players that have a win rate that is above um, 50%. Uh, the average win rate of 17 lands users is roughly 55%, maybe 56. Because of that, you will have those numbers that are slightly skewed up. Uh, but thanks to that, you also have data from players that have relatively high win rate, which means that you sort of can guess that they know what they're doing, which increases the quality of the data. So, uh, uh, yeah. Uh, so yeah, you have you have you have this thing. So that that's uh, that's for everyone that's new. And this is the problem. I have to probably explain it every single time because um, uh, because it it is confusing. But it's also a good catch and and it shows that you're uh, uh, thinking about watching data and not just mindlessly absorbing it, which is always a good sign. Um, but okay, without further ado, let's move back to the blue red spells. Um, I looked at the number of instant and sorceries in the deck, and I looked at the Fractions that had over 500 data points. Uh, so that means minimum was nine instances of sorceries, maximum was 21. And what we can see is, again, a very nice increasing trend. Uh, at 9, 10, or 11 instant sorceries, blue-red decks had like 50% win rate. That's not impressing at all. Um, uh, then, you know, 12, 13, 14, it increases to sort of 54, 55. Then 15, 16, 17, 18 uh, uh, instant sorceries, it goes like 57, 58, 59, almost 60% win rate. And then over 19, 20, 21, we have like 62, 63% win rate. So clearly, blue red spells, the more instant and sorceries in the deck, 
the more you're winning. That's um, that's pretty uh, uh, pretty clear from this data. But this doesn't tell you everything about the archetype. There is also uh, the question of those big two payoff spells in Gandalf Sanction and Fire Inscription. Gandalf Sanction, the one blue-red sorcery, deals X damage to target creature where X is the number of instants and sorcery in your graveyard. But importantly, the excess damage is dealt to the creature's controller instead. So frequently you will play games against the blue-red uh, mage and they will just like tap your creature, bounce them, uh, kill them. And after seven, eight turns of doing that, they will have a stacked library uh, graveyard full of instant sorceries. And all of a sudden they untap and they kill two of your one ones uh, and you get 10 to face for each of those spells and the game is over. Uh, so this is the sort of card that encourages you to play many spells and then accrue value through Gandalf Sanction. And prob my, 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 my speculation was that it promotes longer game. Uh, and then we have Fiery Inscription, and that's two in a red for an enchantment. When it ETBs, the ring tempts you. But I think the important part of it is whenever you cast an instant or sorcery spell, it deals two damage to each opponent. So this here we have... Uh, maybe not play much in the first couple of turns, play Fiery Inscription, and then from, from then on, just start casting spells until uh, opponent is killed for dead. Um, because uh, it's very difficult in this, uh, in this set to deal with enchantments. So I wanted to look at, are there differences between how you play the decks that have Gandalf Sanction and Fiery Inscription? So first I wanted to see what is the win rate by number of spells and the number of copies of Fire Inscription in your deck? And um, red bars are when you have zero Fire Inscriptions in your blue-red deck. Uh, blue is like one and a copy of Fire Inscription and uh, gray is two copies. And very important, um, Fire Inscription, you can't have lower than probably 15 um, uh, 15 or 16 uh, instant and sorceries in your deck to play that card. Uh, when you have 9, 10, or 11 um, firing, uh, uh, instance and sorcery, fire inscription has under 50%. Um, uh, decks with fire inscription have under 50% win rate. Um, and even less when you have two fire inscriptions, uh, that drops to under 45% win rate. Uh, if you have only, you know, like under 11 spells. When you start putting more, it becomes slightly more, but still like between 50 and 55. And only when like you have 15, 16, 17 um, instant and sorceries in your deck, we're starting to look at 57% win rates, which, which is something that you'll be more interested in. And then when you have 19 or 20 um, uh, instant and sorceries, Having two or more fire inscriptions, uh, those decks had like 70% or more uh, win rate. And uh, even with only one fire inscription, you still got comfortably above 60% win rate uh, in, in those decks. So uh, generally what you can get from this graph, and um, you know, on the bar charts it's maybe harder to see, but if you play a blue-red spells deck without the fire inscription, you win slightly less on this top end of spells, uh, but you win much more on this uh, lower end of spells in your deck. So like between nine and 13, you still win over 50% just by having you know, a classic spells deck. 
but then again, you don't win much, but then 58, 59% when you have many spells. While if you have fire inscriptions in your deck, and especially multiple copies, you are going to really suffer if you don't have the uh, sort of, uh, how is it called? Critical mass of, of spells. Uh, you're going to suffer a lot and you're going to have a very, very, very poor win rate. But on the other hand, if you build your deck with multiple spells with like 20-ish or 18 plus spells, you're going to reap the reward. So like the reward for increasing your spell density when you have fire inscriptions and especially multiple copies of those um, are much more uh, accumulating much higher than, than when you don't have those, when your deck becomes sort of slightly middling. Still, blue-red spells decks, even without this fire inscription, are better when you have more spells, but not by much. So then I looked at the number of uh, the win rates based on the number of sanctions and number of inscriptions in the deck. Um, so yeah, like blue-red decks that have neither inscriptions or sanctions uh, had roughly 56% win rate. And then when you increased the uh, sanctions, it also increased the win rate. And when you increased the uh, inscriptions, it also increased the win rate. So basically you go from 56 to, 50 to 60 between zero and three uh, sanctions in the deck. And the same happens when you increase the inscriptions from zero to, uh, uh, from zero to uh, three. Uh, but then I tried to look at sort of synergy between those cards. And I think that there is actually negative synergy between having inscriptions and sanctions. So how I think about it is that if I have two sanctions and one inscription, if those cards were synergistic, I should have the same kind of win rate as if I had either three sanctions or three inscriptions, around 60%. But I don't. I have around 57.5% or 58% when I have two inscriptions, one sanctions, or two sanctions, one inscription. Um, and only when I have sort of like two sanctions, two inscriptions, I, um, I get to, uh, I get to this over 60% win rate. Um, so my thought is that they belong in slightly different decks that have slightly different plans. And I'm probably still going to put my, uh, sanctions in my inscriptions deck, but maybe I'll play them slightly differently. I will not play the game plan of, um, oh, I'm playing a long game and then in the end I'm playing a big sanction. I'm probably going to play the sanctions in the inscription deck more like just a removal spell. I'm just a free mana deal three or free mana deal four, no problem for that at all. Uh, uh, yeah, we take the 53.4 as an outlier. Uh, it's still increasing when you add each, but it's not increasing as much as I would uh, expect. I would expect uh, I would expect having two and one to be at around sixty percent win rate, and we have it at fifty fifty seven point five. And we're going to see the next graph um, that will maybe show that there are slight differences how those two cards play, and 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 maybe um, there are slightly different plans that you want to impose. I looked at the win rate based on the game duration for the decks that have inscriptions, but there are no sanctions in them, or decks that have sanctions, but there are no inscriptions. And first thing you want to see is that decks that have uh, inscriptions, but no sanctions, they win quite a lot of the early game uh, that end at uh, turn six, seven, or eight. Um, they had like, you know, 50, 59, 60% win rate. 
And then it drops off to like 52, 53. So uh, those decks don't have a long staying power. While decks that have sanctions but no inscription, they have slightly lower win rate of like 58, 59 in those early games, but that win rate sort of keeps to the late game. So we still have like 55, 56% win rate uh, on your turns 10, 11, 12, 15, whatever. So um, this sort of points me to the fact that there are slightly different plans when you're playing uh, Inscription and slightly different plans that you uh, when you're playing Sanctions. How about, I didn't do the analysis for the blue-red decks with no Inscription and no Sanction because, um, yeah, I just didn't. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, but looking at those two graphs together, I might say that if I have my inscriptions, I'm already planning to play this burnout faster faster deck uh, that makes opponents concede early or, or kill them quite early. And if I draft Sanction on top of that, I'm probably going to play it in my deck anyway, but I'm going to play it faster. So I'm just going to use it as another tempo piece for me, another piece that deals two damage to the face. I'm going to you know, kill their 2-2. I'm going to kill their 3-3 with it. So, um, um, so yeah. Um, Squealer, I would also tend to probably take Inscription over Sanctions because it fits my gameplay better, I think. But I don't know if that's the right choice. Uh, yeah, it's 56.3 it's, it's win rate when you have zero Sanctions and zero Inscriptions in your deck. I just didn't do the graph for uh, win rates depending on the game length. So I don't know how the game length is being played by those two. So yeah, um, and again, if you're having this deck that wants to, if you already have a couple of sanctions and you um, and you want to uh, play this kind of deck with Hitian, uh, Hitlane Knots or uh, uh, Smeagol's um, Soothing of Smeagol that, that wants to get to the late game and then uh, whack the opponent on the head with, uh, with sanction, I am not sure that you want to even pick the inscription at that stage. You probably are going to... You know, if there's nothing better, you just pick it. But um, and I'm sure that in most packs, uh, when you already have a couple of sanctions and you want to build this kind of game plan, uh, that you probably have to lower uh, the pick order for the inscription. Another thing that you can measure, and that's basically what is the impact of higher rarity cards on your decks. Um, and here I basically look at number of uncommons and the win rate of uh, different color combinations. Um, as you increase the number of uncommons. And there are clearly um, clearly decks that uh, benefit from having multiple uncommons. It's, it's sort of weird measurement because it also shows you how much uh, was particular color combination open, but you see that uh, black-red is um, got pretty high win rate anyway, but uh, with the increase of the uncommons, you got a much higher win rate. So you start at 56, but when you have like eight to, uh, to 10 uncommons in your deck, you approach 60% win rate. But you have some decks that actually don't, don't show any kind of trend. Like Azorius, for example, with the increase of uncommons, it doesn't show any kind of uh, significant increase in the win rate when you have you know 52% when you have four, but you also have 52 when you have nine uncommons and it doesn't show kind of any benefits. So it seems to me like you know blue-white uncommons are just not very important for those decks. Boros, on the other hand, it's a huge impact because you have like 52% win rate when you have three uncommons or something like that. Um, and then it grows up uh, to over 60% when you have 11, 12 uncommons in your decks. Um, yeah, and um, 
this just to show you that um, not necessarily there is a link between openness, number of uncommons, and 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 the win rate. But uh, in some colors, there 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 seems to be. Um, but I think even more important because I know that there is a cer certain fetishization of rares uh, and 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 complaining about bombs uh, that are winning. Uh, in this format, especially, uh, I think in particular, there is no link, and in some colors, even a reverse link between number of rares and mythics that you're having in your deck and the um, uh, and the win rate. So, for example, if you look at the black red, black red does way better when it has zero rares than when it has uh, five, six rares in it. And I think that this has possibly couple of reasons. One reason is that this set is not particularly strong um, in rare, in at rare, but also there is this trap of, uh, oh, I picked a bunch of rares and therefore I'm in those colors, even though they're absolutely not open and I'm drafting them still and I'm having really bad cards with a couple of rares. And, um, you know, rares you pick from pack one, two, three, and there's no signals. And when you decide that, oh, I, I have three good black rares or something and, and, and all of a sudden I'm black red, and all of a sudden, the, those those colors, this color is cut. You end up with the substandard deck, and you see this reverse kind of uh, correlation uh, between number of rares and win rate in blue red and and in black red, uh, and it's a bit weird. So um, I I don't know how to fully explain it, but I think that uh, one important thing is except for white red, which has both high correlation between uh, uncommons and win rate and rares and uh, win rates. Uh, white red is particularly higher rarity uh, dependent, and that means to me that white red is not a deck that exists very well at common level. So uh, you have to keep in mind that if you want to get a good Boros deck, you need to make sure that it's open, and you need to get all those uncommons and all those signposts and stuff like that. No squealer, I'm not saying that you should pass up those bowmasters and witch kings unless I'm sitting next to you, in which case you should be doing that. Obviously, some rares are better than others, but the point is that when you look at them in the bulk, it shows you something more something about average uh, power of uh, of rares. I know that you're joking. Um, so, uh, Mike, 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 the Mike, Mike. Um, I didn't sample this for the same number for each cell. I um, I took everything, but if the number was below, I think hundred. Uh, there is no data for it. So I basically excluded everything under 100. So some of them will have a small small data size. Always in those on, in those tables, like what is at the end probably is subject to higher variance than, than the rest. Uh, and you should keep that in mind. But um, uh, but yeah. Um, um, Luca obviously claims that they won um, uh, the only trophy with Boros with 23 commons and two uncommons. And I believe it, but uh, but on average, I think uh, on on average, I think that um, yeah, you probably won't. Especially you know, red uncommons are quite important for this deck, and also the signposts are quite uh, quite strong in there. So yeah, um, that's the uh, that's the shtick. But generally, there is no like big confirmation in this data that rares are important, at least in this format. And I'm going to be it's going to be interested. Interesting to see the same kind of data in a format that people are complaining about the bombs. If you actually can see that it's all about the bombs, and if you have seven or six, five, six rares, uh, you're going to have um, 
uh, you're going to have a very high win rate. That's just unfair. So now Luca says that um, the both uncommons that he had in the deck was Fear Fire Foes, which is, of course, the most annoying card on the planet and always there when you don't need it to be there. Um, right, so um, last couple of things that are focusing on individual cards. I wanted to look at the uh, Great Hall of the Citadel. Uh, it's a card that many people are um, quite keen on drafting uh, because it is fun and undoubtedly fun. So I wanted to look at some data on it and, and, and see the win rates um, of um, how good they are depending on how many legendary spells. And I specifically excluded uh, uh, the legendary lands from that analysis. So there are only spells that you can cast. Um, and what is the win rate of the decks with, with or without the Great Hall of the Citadel? So just uh, for the podcast listeners, Great Hall of the Citadel, if you don't know, it's a land. It taps for colorless, but for one colorless in a tap, it adds two mana in any combination of colors. Spend this mana only to cast legendary spells. Um, so first thing is that if you have zero Great Halls of Citadels, the more legends you put in your deck, the lower the win rate. And, you know, like zero to three legends in your deck is um, probably uh, at a decent 57% win rate. But then the more legends you put, the lower the win rate. And I'm pretty sure that this is because uh, people try to make those uh, three, four color decks that have multiple legends. And if they don't get the whole of the Citadel, it's a tragedy because they are just playing four color deck. And, um, and because of that, have problem casting their spells. But you see uh, basically a reverse correlation between um, number of legends in your deck uh, and the win rate if you have zero Great Halls of the Citadel. With one Great Hall of the Citadel, you start seeing completely the opposite. So luckily, not many people played uh, the Great Hall with zero legends in, your, uh, in their deck. Uh, but some people did play already Great Hall with one legendary spell. And turns out not a great idea. The win rate was 50.4%. Um, but the more legends you start putting, the higher the win rate. And you know, um, you have to keep in mind that probably Great Hall of the Citadel is played in multicolor decks, which have a generally a lower win rate than two-color decks, which you will see in the first column. So, um, so uh, you know, here we probably look at mainly two-color decks. Here we mainly look probably at three, four-color decks, which will explain part of the difference between them. So it is quite nice to see that um, if you have 9, 10, 11, 12, 13 legends in your deck, we started getting to 54% win rate, uh, even only with one uh, Great Hall of the Citadel, which means that you know having things to cast from it will increase the win rate. And the more holes you start getting, so with, with two holes, we, we go to the average of like 55% uh, of even 56% uh, when you have nine more legends in your deck. And then if you have three or more great holes, we're starting to see things like 59%, uh, 58% uh, win rate when you have 10 or more legends. So um, it looks like having multiple holes and uh, enables you to play multiple legends from different colors and actually have an acceptable win rate, uh, considering that you're playing uh, most likely a very multicolor deck. So um, 
it looks like from the data that great hall strategies are real. There is a little bit of noise in this data, but I think that the trends are clear enough to be able to conclude that um, playing a bunch of multicolor legends, a um, bunch of legends in different colors, uh, and supporting them with the great hall of the citadel is not an absolutely useless idea. But it's very bad to do the same thing without putting the great hall in your deck. Ta-da! That's like a um, bit of data about one card. And then last card that I wanted to have a quick look at is March from the Black Gate, because I made a Twitter request to people to ask about which cards would they like to see a bit more data on. And uh, one person wrote March from the Black Gate. So why wouldn't I do it for them if they asked for it uh, on Twitter? And you see, everyone could have replied to it and get their card analyzed. But March from the Black Gate was surprisingly powerful. Um, and I mean surprisingly powerful uh, given the evaluation it got at set reviews. So it, it, it sort of was not, it was expected to be like not a great card and it turned out to be quite powerful. Um, and especially in some situation. But I think that it ran into the thing where it probably was overrated at some stage. Like it's good, but it may be not that good. Um, so the question that I had was, is it density dependent? Because I think that this card as a design has an interesting conflict uh, built in. So on one hand, uh, because your armies get better when this is in the battlefield, you want to be restarting it. So if you someone kills your uh, mass army, you want to have ways to restart it. But then on the other hand, if they don't kill it and you play more amass spells, uh, they become less valuable because instead of um, instead of making a new body, they just um, become auras that uh, boost uh, the existing one. So, um, and also like then you have played like free spells because you want to play spells and you have this one big army, then when this gets killed, you're putting too many eggs in one basket and you're losing too much value. So there is like, nice balance that you want to have there between the um, not having any other amass spells and having too many other amass spells. So I was curious how this is going to look like and I decided to, of course, measure that. Um, so basically what you can see is um, I looked at the decks that have one march or two or more marches of the Black Gate in, um, in the deck and what you can see is that decks that have very few amass cards uh, with having March in them have slightly lower win rate, and it does increase as you put more amass spells. And it's not a clear, super clear trend, but um, but it is a trend nonetheless. So um, I would say. Uh, with the march, you want to maximize on your uh, on your amass basically uh, as much as possible, um, and this is you know a nice change from the previous graphs that were absolutely clear. Let's like let's go back to the um, to the relation between number of number of the tamped cards and and the win rate. This is like as clear a data as you can get that there is basically. You want to have either zero tempt or you want to have a lot of tempt and you don't want to end up in the trap of having just a couple of tempt cards in your deck. Um, here, here we see a, a much more messy trend. 
And that's probably also obscured by the fact that Black March is played in uh, in multiple archetypes and not in every archetype it's going to be great. So uh, that might uh, obscure something. You managed to get a couple of things uh, home and I hope that I managed to um, uh, at least show you a couple of ways of looking at data and trying to figure out game plans from the data looking at speeds of different archetypes, looking at uh, density of certain effects uh, and how they can impact the, um, um, the win rate. Hopefully also combining those two and looking at the density of uh, spells and at the same time looking at um, different speed plans between uh, Gandalf Sanction and uh, Fire Inscription. Um, and hopefully you can, you know, now just dive into the 17lands.com uh, public data sets and uh, fish them out and, and try maybe on your own to uh, figure out something for your pet card. Um, but if not, no, I would like to thank people that are making this all possible. And, you know, especially today at the release of the game data, I would like to thank the 17lands team with uh, Viral Misnomer and ZTM uh, especially. Um, I'd also like to thank fake Jake Brown, who is a constant source of support for my struggles in releasing this in the podcast version. And since we are at the uh, podcast version, uh, I would like to thank also Asesku and Manajanki for the music that I'm using in that medium. Um, and of course, I would like to thank mtgazon.com for sponsoring my shenanigans. And um, uh, I would like to thank all the patrons and hopefully no new patrons this week, but hopefully next week, maybe someone, anyone. Yeah? Uh, and with that, I'll see you next week. <laughs>